Welcome to the So Why Podcast with Step Care Solutions. This podcast aims to explore issues and challenges as well as ideas and solutions leading to strengthening support for mental wellness and recovery. My name is Alexa Bull, Knowledge Exchange Manager at Step Care Solutions, and I will be your host for this episode. In this podcast, we will explore the concept of recovery and recovery orientation as it relates to mental health and creating a recovery-oriented approach to mental health supports and well-being. Recovery in Step Care 2.0 is conceptualized as a diverse set of principles, values, and practices that aim to empower people experiencing mental health challenges along with their families and communities. This term recovery for our purposes is intended to capture a deeply personal journey that looks different for each person and is guided by choice, preference, and readiness. It recognizes that there is no endpoint and that there can be ups and downs that look and feel different in each person's journey. StepCare 2.0 embraces recovery-oriented practice throughout the care system by recognizing that one approach may not meet every need. People are unique and diverse, and their experiential knowledge and perspectives are valuable in guiding their wellness journeys. Providing a wide range of supports and resources, both formal and informal, allows people to choose options that they feel are right for them when they choose to use them. StepCare 2.0 envisions a system that values the strengths, resilience, and knowledge of those seeking help and acknowledges their capacity in making informed decisions about their preferences for services and supports. Today, we are joined by Janice Campbell, who currently serves as StepCare Solutions Recovery-Oriented Practice Lead. Drawing from the diversity of her experiences as a helping professional, service user, and scholar practitioner, Janice brings a unique lens to her visionary leadership in recovery and StepCare 2.0. Prior to her current role, Janice facilitated client and community focus groups for the StepCare 2.0 e-mental health demonstration project and worked as a research assistant for the Canadian Institute of Health Research Project investigating the digitization of StepCare 2.0 in three Atlantic Canadian provinces. She is currently a Doctor of Education candidate at Western University, specializing in mental health leadership and higher education. Janice's research investigates recovery-oriented practice in StepCare 2.0 post-secondary implementations. She has expertise in the provision of counseling services within the StepCare 2.0 model and has led the development and implementation of wellness and peer support programming in post-secondary and community settings. Janice is a counseling professional, clinical supervisor, and sessional instructor for Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador's Faculty of Education Counseling Psychology Program. She is also the Newfoundland and Labrador Director for the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association National Board. Janice, it's so nice to have you with us today. Welcome to the So Why Podcast. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Amazing. So we're going to start out um, with just a really basic question about recovery. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the concept of recovery and recovery orientation and what the intentions are behind this concept as we're talking about it today. Thank you. That's a great starting off question. Um, The first thing that I'll say about recovery is that there are many different understandings and ideas about what it actually is. Um, Lots of people I've spoken to uh, have heard about recovery in terms of substance use recovery and well-known peer support groups in the mental health space. There's been a lot of work done by uh, the Mental Health Commission of Canada. They 
you know, American Psychological Association and uh, SAMHSA, their definitions of recovery and the principles are widely used. And so my, my current understanding based on my work and the research that I've done is that recovery is something that's best judged by the person experiencing it. Out of the many definitions, I, I do find some common themes. So my current description is recovery and recovery orientation is a diverse set of principles, values, and behaviors. And they're all based on strengths, empowerment, and self-determination of the person who is seeking help in a mental health system. And so you'll hear lots of strength-based language and, and things about choice uh, you know, in recovery-oriented systems. And you know, I will say that my definition and my ideas around recovery iterate and grow all the time. And I think that's a good thing. Thanks so much for that. Um, I really love how, you know, you explained this really fluid concept that's really strength-based and really focused on the person experiencing um, whatever it is that they're experiencing on their wellness journey. And I think that's a really, really interesting concept to explore. And you're right. I think not everybody has the same concept of recovery. And so, you know, I think it's important to set that stage on what, what we're talking about today. So thank you so much for sharing that. So where does the concept of recovery in mental health and substance use come from? Well, it was really popularized by the consumer survival movement that um, began in the 70s, 80s, and continued. Um, so that was really a social justice movement, people with lived experience. Uh, it was in the deinstitutionalization era where asylums and mental health hospitals were being shut down. People with uh, diagnostic labels that had been in these hospitals and asylums were released as these uh, closed down. And there were supposed to be community supports in place for them, but there wasn't really much there. And so what happened was they started supporting each other. And that's where you see peer support and things like that start. And, you know, they found their own strengths and community together. And this really grew and blossomed into what we have today, which is multiple understandings and definitions of recovery and recovery orientation within substance use and within mental health. Between those two, they can have different meanings, uh, and there's as much diversity about the definition of recovery and substance use and addictions than there are in the mental health space. And I, I really like talking to my substance use and addictions uh, working peers because I come from more of a mental health recovery and lived experience with mental health side of things. And you know, I want to learn more about experiences of others that have been different from me. Because when I do talk to people, like often we're talking about the same things. People have the right to appropriate care and to make decisions based on their care. And they have strengths. And people with mental illness are capable of living and contributing to lives, living a good life. They have so many wonderful strengths and so much to offer. But that's not even now uh, how they're treated generally in our society. I'll also say that the actual term recovery can have its challenges as well. So, for example, in some spaces, it has clinical implications so that uh, recovery means you're recovering from something that is wrong with you might be the implication, especially in a medical system that's dominated by the biomedical model. The biomedical model really focuses on pathology, managing behavioral symptoms, 
and an illness in a recovery-oriented system, everyone has the right and capability of leading meaningful lives and having supportive, healthy environments and people who help them thrive. Whether or not they have a diagnostic label, that shouldn't factor in. I think everything you're saying is, is really interesting, even going all the way back to the deinstitutionalization era. And to think, you know, that wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. um, and to think all of the changes that have happened since then, and yet we still have changes to make in order to reach, truly reach this strength-based sort of recovery orientation that we're talking about today. I also find it interesting, you know, to explore the implications of the word, right? Because sometimes when people hear that word recovery, it means something different to them. So I appreciate you kind of going through some of the implications that some other fields may have. So when thinking about the mental health system, substance use system, what do you think some tangible actions are that we can take within the system to become more person-centric and allow space for different perspectives and preferences that build on strengths and capacities of individuals and their communities? Yeah, great question. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind for that is co-design, real co-design and not engagement. There's there's differences. Co-design really involves the, is the active involvement of different stakeholders, in, including service users. People with lived experience often are, are part of co-design in a mental health system. And they should have you know, equal voice at the table. And that should be part of the planning, the development, but also the implementation and evaluation of, of a service, it should be a continuous thing. And that's something in Step Care 2.0 that is really important. It's part of our principles and our core components. Uh, if we're just doing engagement, that's the kind of thing you see when maybe we'll have a focus group, get some feedback and then take it away. And people don't always have a voice. They have their opinions shared. They don't necessarily know what is happening with the information being collected. They're not an active part of a process. Um, and so if we're not careful, that can become tokenistic and that can just further other people. And, and we don't want to do that. Awesome. So that's really interesting that you brought up co-design. Um, our last episode went into great detail on co-design. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you bring up a really important factor in doing co-design effectively in a system is including people with lived and living experience yeah. um, of diverse natures so that, you know, when we're designing the system, it actually reflects the people who are using it, accessing it, experiencing it in different ways. And that then leads to that recovery orientation, strength-based uh, type of system. So what do you think this whole concept of recovery looks like in practice? It can look like so many different things. Like with any step care 2.0 model, it's going to represent the community that builds it. And, and that's really important. Just like with co-designing anything, there should be representation from all key stakeholders and rights holders and whoever should have a voice at the table um, designing their and evaluating their own care system. Asking questions like who's not at the table <laughs> and, and really seeking to engage as many people and groups as possible. You can do everything from reviewing policies for person-first language. I really think uh, client-centric care, which is uh, part of Step Care 2.0, is a great example of recovery in action. So in that way, the help seeker is the decision maker when it comes to their own care. And that's a little bit different than client-centered, where they might be the focus, but they may or may not be in the room and have decision-making power. 
So people working in the system as service providers would support the decision-making by providing information and facilitating a process where somebody can make a truly informed choice. But the person seeking the service is the one that makes the choice because they know what's best for them. And they can make a choice based on all the information presented and with whatever support they believe makes sense around them. Drop-in single session therapy is another great example. The assumptions that really underpin that approach are client-centric and strengths-based. You know, underlying assumptions like positive change and a therapeutic connection can happen in one conversation and one encounter, especially for meeting the person at their time of need. So if they need help and they have access at the moment they need help, then Lots can come out of that if they're not on a wait list for months or or anything like that. And then in these kinds of sessions, the client, the help seeker, really talks about what's their top of mind concern is, what there's what support they're looking for. And there's really minimal assessment up front. So there's not a ton of paperwork to go through in the waiting room, or initially we're not expecting a full biopsychosocial assessment as the default for anyone coming in. It's It more gets to what's the top of mind concern and also valuing the service provider's expertise. So if anything is needed in terms of assessment or talking about risk, then the service provider is trained to do that. Those are some really fantastic examples that really embody some of the principles behind the conceptualization of recovery. And, you know, I really appreciate the tie-in between Step Care 2.0 and recovery orientation and the fact that open access creates this opportunity where people at their point of readiness, at their point of need, when they reach out for help, are are able to receive access to something and really focus on what what is their top of mind concern? What is it that they want to deal with? They are then able to make those decisions based on what's best for them and their preferences, which I think is really, really important and really great examples of what you're describing as recovery. So why do we think that applying the underlying principles behind this conceptualization of recovery orientation can help support people's wellness? Oh, in in so many ways. I mean, everything you just described is uh, a system that allows us to be more culturally sensitive and meet people where they are, trust what they're saying, trust their own self-knowledge and and follow their lead in terms of what's important to them, what they might need. And and your job is to help and support and, and facilitate that conversation with them. So I don't want to dismiss professional expertise. At the same time, in a step care 2.0 model that's recovery oriented, the strengths of the person seeking help and their capabilities are valued and trusted by you know, the, the professionals and the system in general working with them. So a recovery-oriented system supports people's wellness in that way. It also really seeks to even out the power dynamics. I won't say equalize because that's not really what happens if if we're in the real world and we're honest, but it does give some of the power back to the person seeking help. And if you think about the recovery movement and deinstitutionalization and people really empowering themselves because no one else was there helping them, um, they did incredible things for each other and they still do. And that's why you see things like peer support continuing to be such a strong and valued part of mental health support. You're seeing it valued in actual mental health service settings now. You're seeing professional peer supporters 
that are trained and paid for their time and their work and their lived experience expertise. And so that is showing value to lived experience expertise. And evening the power dynamic helps empower people seeking help. And like I said, it really values their experiential knowledge and ties in with the step care 2.0 value of people have to know what's best for them. And people have a lot of strengths and capabilities to bring to the table. And it's important that we learn about those things and understand those things and bring them into the conversation as, as just as equally as important as say, uh, maybe taking some medication or doing some psychotherapy or the, the things that we might immediately think of when it comes to mental health treatment. That's fantastic. I think you hit on a lot of really interesting points there about people and their wellness and, you know, just really valuing people as people mm-hmm. and valuing their experiences. And I think things have changed a lot since that deinstitutionalization period. And I think a lot of work has definitely been done around stigma mm-hmm. and reducing some of that stigma around mental health and changing some of the narrative. And I also think we can continue to work on that. And I really like how you mentioned about professionals and how professionals are super valuable in being able to help people gain knowledge, understanding, and helping people uncover their strengths and capacities that maybe a really well-directed conversation can really support. And so, you know, you made an interesting point about power dynamics, the fact that the professional doesn't necessarily have to have all the power because the care is for the person. And so they have things within them that can be highlighted and pulled out that people can then act on and, you know, be able to make good decisions around their own wellness, which I think is is really, really important. And continuing to move in that direction and Step Care 2.0 is, is a great way to do that at a system level. So based on that, What are some key things that everyone throughout the system can be mindful of to ensure people are supported and valued throughout their wellness journey? Yeah, another great question. I mean, if you offer a service, you can review the client experience of your service. ATP, ask the person. It seems so simple, but we often move so quickly. We don't have processes in place where we actually do that. So find ways to put yourself in the shoes of the person seeking the service or better yet, just ask for their feedback and include them in the co-design and and really actively engage in that process as an ongoing thing, as opposed to tell us something in a survey and, and then that's it. Think about what is it like to enter the space if you're in a clinic? Are there forms to fill out? What kind of language is on the forms? Is your space accessible? Are your policies recovery oriented? So for example, person first language? Or do you have policies in place where people are denied service in some circumstances? Sometimes that's happened in the mental health system in terms of substance use. People have faced barriers where if they are continuing to use substances, they can't engage with treatment, for example. That's still quite prevalent. Can you identify barriers to access and work collaboratively with people toward removing them? So seeking out feedback, asking those questions, but not you're not making the people with lived experience do all the work either. You're putting yourself in their shoes. You're talking to them. It's, it's moving away from the us and them 
And, and that gets me to also the second point I want to make to your question, which is we need to think about how we're training professionals to work in the mental health space because we're still training in a medical model. And even though there, there might be some progress in terms of recovery orientation, we're still really having trouble putting a little bit more of the human and human services in some cases. So we're training professionals to assess and diagnose and, and there's a role for that. So I'm not saying labels are terrible. They do hurt a lot of people, but they also help a lot of people. So I'm not going to take that away from someone who decides that that is important for them because that's their recovery journey. And they're the best one to say, this is what my wellness journey is. This is what I need. But if we're training professionals and we continue to do so in a deficits-based approach where my job is to help this person, it's like imposing help on a person versus helping a person in that collaborative, more equalized power dynamic. And I, I know lots of, you know, I'm a counselor myself. I know lots of people working in counseling and therapy and psychology in general that do work in this way with clients, but they may also work in a system that requires them to do suicide risk assessment screening or a full biopsychosocial assessment before they even ask the person why they've sought your help in the first place. And that's a problem. So how we train, how we supervise, and the systems and structures we're working within are really important to look at. That's really interesting to think about. It sounds so simple. Ask the person and ask them in every aspect of the system and day-to-day -day work. And actually what you're talking about is really making it a part of the day-to-day practice. It's not an extra thing that people do on top of something. It's not a consultative tokenistic process, but it's more something that's integrated into every aspect of a program, every aspect of a service, every aspect of a system. Empathizing, finding out what do people need? What is difficult for them? What is a barrier to them getting help? What helps them? What, what makes things easier? You know, just some of the simple things about understanding where a person is coming from and then valuing that, right? Like you really talked a lot about placing value on what people have to offer, their experience, their knowledge. It is valuable. So always incorporating that as a part of the system, as an everyday activity in your day-to-day -day practice. And you mentioned something important as well, which can really support system change is the training, and really ensuring that recovery orientation and person centricity is all incorporated in that training. And then, you know, you also mentioned, but the larger system also has to change as well to reflect some of those underlying principles at a policy level so that when people are trained to operate in those ways, they are able to, and they're not hindered by some of the requirements and expectations and policies that direct their work. Absolutely. So we've had a really great discussion today. And I'm wondering if before we end, if you have anything else, you know, that you didn't get to say during this conversation that you'd really think is important to highlight about this topic. Well, recovery and, and people with lived experience are the center of all of these things that we're talking about. And as a person with my own lived experience, as a mental health professional, we're everywhere. And there's stigma within our profession. And I've faced situations where I was discriminated against uh, if people knew 
about my diagnostic labels. You know, I have people that would be my clients. And if they found out any details about that, would immediately stop working with me. And even more so, professionals, colleagues, people working in the mental health space in general, like we all have some kind of experience that has made us interested in this work. And that could be experiences with a friend or family member, that could be your own experiences. And and so for me, I'm really trying to look at things through this intersectionality of my identity and embracing all of these parts because I I can't reconcile looking at things through a service provider lens and a person with lived experience of mental illness lens because those things clash with each other sometimes. And these are all parts of me and, and these are all parts of me that inform the lens that I look through the world at. And I think it's important and valuable that we value our own experiences and have that as an equal part of our expertise. So my professional training and expertise was really valuable and I use it all the time. But my personal lived experience is equally and differently part and very important of my process. And I think the more and more we can make it safe to engage with these different parts of ourselves, even internally and individually, whether you say it out loud or not, which by the way, is still quite a new thing for me to talk about out loud. And that's part of me honoring all of these different pieces and embracing who I actually am. The more we make that safe, I think the better off we'll all be. And it makes me stay connected to the humanness and the human service. I'm always connected to a grounding where I have this experiential understanding of what it can feel like to be face planted at the bottom and experience despair and to really need somebody else's help and the kinds of experiences that will send me further into despair versus actually help me pull myself out. And and I say pull myself out because we're the ones that have to do all the work, much as everyone would love a good rescue at a time like that. Um, you know, so when you've done that kind of work and and you're grounded in it and you can stay connected in a very, you know, experiential way, that doesn't mean you all feel bad. It just means that that's always a part of how you're thinking about things and looking at the world through in terms of a lens. I think that immediately makes us more compassionate and empathetic with people. And I, I think it's something we can't ignore, but I recognize that there are a lot of barriers to engaging with this part of ourselves and just talking openly in that very human way and doing that in a system when there's still negative consequences for doing that. So I, that's just my two cents and my own experience. But I think it's really important and people with lived experience definitely drive recovery but they shouldn't be doing all of the work. We all need to be engaging and tapping into these parts of our experiences, sharing and connecting with each other and moving forward together in this collaborative community empowered way. And I think that's something that's really beautiful and really needed. Thank you so much for sharing that and for drawing on your own experiences. I think it's really important to know that there is still stigma that exists in certain respects. And I really love how you really pulled out that 
it's important to embrace all sides of ourselves in a system. And it's also important for us all to value each other's experiences and each other's knowledge. And I really love how you highlighted the balance between your professional experience and your lived experience and trying to reconcile those two parts of yourself and how sometimes there's a clash between the two. And I think that really highlights where we still have some work to do throughout the system. Because really, if we're going to stay in an ideal world, an ideal system, that clash wouldn't happen because lived experience would be valued at such a level that it would have equity with sort of the the training and the professional experience that people have. So I loved how you talked about embracing our experiences as a part of us, being able to operate in those experiences. So I really appreciate you sharing, you know, everything that you have today, as well as adding your own personal flavor and experience, because I'm sure there are many people who also have similar experiences and wrestle with similar things. As you mentioned, a lot of folks who work in fields like this are driven here because they do have some type of lived experience, whether through a friend, family member, or a personal experience. So I want to thank you so much, Janice, for taking the time to speak with us today and just giving us so much uh, wisdom on this topic. Thank you. It's really great to be here. I do have one more thing to add to finish with. I always tell the counseling students I work with, I usually begin with something like, there's three things for you to really remember as you're learning all of these skills. Humility, curiosity, and context. You can't ignore the context in which somebody is living. And if you approach your work with humility and genuine curiosity, you're going to go far. Awesome. Amazing three points to leave us with. (laughs) That was an awesome final three points. Move closer to the humanness in Mm -hmm. human services. Thank you so much once again, Janice, for your contributions and for sharing with us today. We hope to have you again sometime on the So I podcast. I hope so. Thank you very much. Thank you once again for joining us on the So Why podcast with Step Care Solutions. For more information on the Step Care 2.0 model, the Wellness Together Canada portal, as well as links to resources mentioned in this episode, please check out the show notes below. Thanks for tuning in once again. We look forward to having you back next time.